Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the 1099. Oh, I didn't even think about how stupid that sounds. 99 of the 1099. For the week of July 3rd, 2017, I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the co-founder of Special Gun Productions and also, you know, his real claim to fame, editing one of my features at videogamer.com, Stephen W. Burns. Steve, how are you doing today? <laughs> Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. It's it's been a while. I last time we talked, your life was pretty different. Um, we podcasted right before the big video gamer shakeup. Uh, when you were still doing wrestling moves on videos and <laughs> hanging out with all those guys. I mean, now, like I said, you started Special Gun, and you've gotten away for the most part from the traditional side of games media. So, just so people know, and I have a really clear idea. What do you currently do with the company? What is a week in the life of Steve Burns like right now? Uh, it's a video production company, so along with Jim Trinker, who was a video gamer, and uh, David Mills, who I've known for years and who has come from a kind of a film and television and music video background. Uh, he's a director, camera operator, cameraman. Uh, does live sports as well. So he's done stuff like Star Wars, uh, Game of Thrones. He's actually done some stuff on Episode Eight, but amazingly, oh, wow. it's been a nearly a year since the company was founded, and he has so far said nothing, which is, you know, it's probably, you know, it's a good sign. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we, we do video production for brands or publishers, working on uh, creative campaigns for them, as well as doing all the other stuff you do associated video production be that making trailers or consulting on on certain games and uh, that's essentially that's the week the week is running around going right we got to do it can we do it yeah we can do it there you go that's pretty much it and then with a lot of worrying interspersed like all creative endeavor and then uh yeah but so far so good I'm guessing that before you made this move, even while you're still at Video Gamer, this must have been on your mind to like, hey, this might be something we want to do in the future. I mean, how much time did you spend lining up potential clients or at least people you might think would work with you? Because you don't seem like someone who's going to be like, all right, I'm done with this one job. Now I'm just going to start all over from scratch and hopefully it'll work. I'm guessing you had a pretty clear idea that this was going to work out, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was no kind of like evil evil genius plan really as such obviously you need a plan <laughs> but um but no it wasn't kind of like getting ducks in a row really or anything we knew so with uh with dave i'd known him for a long long time since i was at university in england and yeah we'd always wanted to do something like that so we even before i got anywhere close to the video game industry there was a plan that at one point he and i would have a video production company which would work on some commercial stuff and then we'll see, you know, see where it goes. And then obviously, you know, everything got in the way, life to, you know, to a good degree. It's been, it's been an amazing journey uh, for both of us and for Jim. But we thought, yeah, the time's right because in, in video games, criticism or journalism, it's very cyclical. You know, after a while, you want to do new things and try new creative stuff. And I think at Video Gamer, it was amazing. We got to do so much of that. It was, you know, the wrestling stuff, the creative stuff. And we thought, okay, well, you know, we, Dave and I had always wanted to do that. Jim's obviously an amazingly talented person. We're going to leave. And, uh, yeah, so this is what we're going to do. And even if you already had certain contacts from working in games, all of you have different contacts and you've been out there on videos, you've been out there on big enough sites that people know who you are. Did a lot of the early stuff when you were starting Special Gun, was it just, 
all right, we need to get some clips out there. We need to actually do some work in order to have people, other potential clients, see the kind of crazy work we do, see the quality of what we do, and then the work can start piling in. Yeah, I think that your notoriety or how many people know you actually only goes so far, to be honest. It's, you know, none of us uh, are Brad Pitt. None of us uh, game over Greggy, basically. It's not, you know, people have stopped us in the street before. That's happened. But it's not, you know, don't get mobbed. That happens like once every three months or something. Generally, when you're in London or at E3, you know, where generally you expect people who know about video games and are interested to be. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just a case of we knew what we could do. But when we started, we... Basically, if we managed to get in a few rooms after we'd left, we had to. We couldn't just ride on what we'd done before. Essentially, we had to show that we could do something, you know, uh, a bit different. Because when you're working with a client, it's a bit different. Well, in fact, it's a lot different from working at a video game site covering games. So even though it looks kind of similar to begin with, it's it's really not. I mean, has working from the side of the games business, I mean, you're not doing all games, but has working from the side from the business changed your perspective about just what the game industry is as a whole? Now that I'm, so I'm working at uh, Tan Gentleman, also have some work with mm-hmm. Sony Santa Monica, and getting out of games media and working from this side, like just imagining going back and reviewing video games, I think it'd be hard to do it exactly the same way because you do understand the development, the publishing side, you understand the different hurdles they have to get through to actually release a fucking game and you always understand that to a certain extent when you haven't gone through that experience but seeing different angles does change your perspective so like let's say if you went back to games media now would you do anything differently than you did before or has this not really changed much for you well i came into games criticism from having worked in qa for uh, publishers like ea and sega so generally i already had quite a good idea of how the games were actually made because I was in one way or another bug reports and confidence reports and smoke tests and everything critiquing them and uh, now in you know, QA gets a bit of a bad rap but generally you need it for your games to be good because the problem is you get too close to them and with any creative project you know you need the people you need other people to say no otherwise you get a George Lucas or Wachowski situation so um, you know, it's uh, coming to it from from working at Video Gamer and then before that working at Imagine Publishing. It was no, not really in terms of how campaigns, how you know, PR stuff, or you know, ad stuff. You know, obviously, you know a bit more now because you're more clued in uh, to certain things a lot earlier. You understand how publishers really want their games to be perceived and how they want them to go out because obviously you're part of making sure that they hit those targets but at the same time I don't think that anything has really changed because I always tried to fall back on my experience working with games so I never really went too crazy if a game was buggy mm-hmm. like I know that might seem a bit you know hypocritical because buggy like mother care that old joke <laughs> of mine but um, there are games out there where, you know, it's like Homefront 2, that one, and it's just, I, that got killed everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, but I played it, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether I got lucky with the, you know, what I played it on, the machine I played it on. It was terrible on, on PlayStation. But on PC, in the whole, I thought it had good elements, but it was really quite buggy. But, you know, it, 
having worked in that environment, it wasn't really enough to, to kill it stone dead for me, even though I had to draw attention to that. So I think having worked there before, that gives you a like more of an insight onto just why you know everything doesn't get fixed because it's impossible and secondly you see people saying well why didn't they just add that uh, third person camera or add that multiplayer mode and it's like do you know how difficult it is to make a demo (laughs) how difficult it is to just cut a demo out now how much time that takes and uh, but but no that's the thing i think with uh and it's i don't think it's actually the fault of the players at all because video games uh, because they're very tech focused and I can understand it, it's quite secretive. And I think sometimes that leads to people being ignorant, not necessarily of their own making or own fault of just how difficult it is to, to, to actually make sure this thing works at all. I mean, it's a minor miracle that anything goes out and works. And I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And there is this weird, lack of understanding surrounding what it takes to add a feature like you mentioned when i was talking to mike laidlaw from uh, dragon age the other day he's mentioned he doesn't get angry at all the comments and the tweets about like why don't you just add this why don't you just make this mass effect plus halo plus this plus that doesn't get angry it's more of just like this desire to want to educate to just be like this is Mm. not like you're not flipping switches you're not like a lot of these things are complex and people just don't understand it. Uh, he does, he streams out games and very often will play other developers' games and kind of talk about, here's why I think this decision was made or here's why I think this happened. And I, I do think we kind of lack this educational game development side for people, not only who play games, but even who critique games in a certain extent where they're like, man, if they would have just done this, this, and this. And like you said, behind the scenes, it's, it's a goddamn miracle when anything actually gets out there and isn't an entirely massive mess. Uh, and we are seeing more and more broken games, so maybe there are more messes lately. But uh, it is it is insane when you see something come out that's actually extremely good and hits all those notes and has a major team because it's so many different systems working together. Uh, for your actual job with Special Gun, it, we you we, I mentioned before that you did some work with Resident Evil Seven, which ended up being currently maybe one of my favorite games of the year. Uh, kind of surprisingly, one of my favorite games of the year. Um, how much of if you're working on a new project, working on putting something together for a new game, how much of that game do you get to see before you actually put a campaign out there? Like, do you get a chance to play a significant portion and kind of get an idea of this is a cool project, I think it's going to do well, let's do something with it? Or is it a little bit of a shot in the dark for you? Well, it it really does depend on the project is is the answer, the obvious answer, and really the, the true one. Sometimes you'll see a lot of... Uh, a lot of it sometimes you won't see much at all really so yeah again it it, ju- it does depend um on it but when we came to resident evil 7 um quite a lot of it was already out there so it wasn't like it was a, a super secret project or anything like that it was already you know kind of well on the way and had been revealed at e3 um and they had they'd they'd had the downloadable uh, beginning hour stuff so yeah you could you could get a handle on it just from that alone really but yeah each that's that's part of the challenge i suppose is that uh you don't see uh necessarily all of it um and so you kind of you you just have to go with what you've been told and what you're kind of you're you're meant to know games obviously especially if you've come from games and you know a lot of publishers like to ask you what do you think you know this in certain circumstances so yeah it's uh 
generally everyone is different. And I, I assume it's it's kind of similar to how, you know, trailer houses uh, operate. So when they're, you know, a big blockbuster has a, you know, a trailer that uh, the studio wants made or distributor, they send it out and they say, this is where this is. And that's why a lot of trailers have um, uh, shots in them or parts of them that actually aren't in the finished film because the film isn't, isn't already done yet. So yeah. it really does depend. Sometimes you all have seen quite a lot, like in the case of Resi 7. So you could, you, anyone could download and play. And in some circumstances, you don't really see that much at all because it is, you know, there people are cracking on with it in the early stages or, you know, it, it's basically eyes only stuff. So yeah, it really all does depend. Do you at all feel that your company is associated with the quality of the actual product you are producing something for? Which is maybe a weird question, but let's say you started doing work for Bioware and Mass Effect Andromeda. You know, you're, you believe in that because it's like a major franchise. It's an amazing opportunity for you guys. That game comes out and it kind of gets panned across the board by critics. Uh, when you're promoting something that quality wise, when it releases, isn't as great, maybe as people thought. Do you at all feel not responsible but associated with the critical failure of that? Or do you feel like you're such a se- separate entity? Uh, any Anything you're going to be judged by is just the quality of the work you do before the game comes out. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, really. it's In terms of when you work on something that then goes on, so you do a campaign, like we did for Resident Evil 7, and Resident Evil 7 was, was well-received. Uh, you know, that's obviously you feel great about that, but you feel generally you just want to worry about the work that you do. So if you're worrying about the work that, you know, a thousand strong, 300 strong, whatever development team is doing, then you're not necessarily doing your job because worrying about that, you can't, you can't control that at all. All you can control is how do we, you know, how do we take what we know about this game, no matter what it is? How do we make the the best representation of it? And if you start worrying about, oh, but what if it it turns out to not be good? Then you'll you'll never get anything done. And I think that's yeah. true. That's true with almost anything. I think what a lot of uh, people in creative industries uh, suffer from, and I suffer from this quite a bit, is they just start thinking about things that aren't important. Like they start thinking about the whole before they start thinking about the actual constituent parts of it. And when you start thinking like that, you get into situations where, you know, suddenly you've got a thousand different concerns, which really may not actually be relevant uh, at the time. And uh, so really just uh, so, so far, we've taken what we know about anything that we work on and just work on making that what we do the best. And if it's a hit, if the game's great, fantastic, you know, but uh, if... Uh, if it wasn't, we've not done any work with EA or Bioware. I think that situation with Mass Effect was a bit, a bit overblown. I, under, I understand that there were, you know, issues with uh, early demos and stuff like that. But I think if you, it sounds, you know, a bit like a cliche, and I suppose it is. But just focus on what you do. They'll focus on what they do, and then you've really got to see how it goes from there. Do you think there are more opportunities like yours with this, uh, than the new, the new studio you're you're working with, with uh, you look at cloth map. You look at no clip. Um, there's a lot of different avenues to go besides just traditional games media. It always felt like if you weren't at a GameSpot, an IGN, or you know whatever else, it was hard to find ways to talk about games and work with games. It was like you're either development or you're media. Now there are you know Twitch streamers. Now there are YouTubers. Now there are these 
avenues like Patreon where you can do video game documentaries or you can just go around the world and do cool shit somehow related to games. And as long as you have some sort of name tied to you or at least a really good idea, you'll find the funding. I mean, first question, I guess, would just be, do you feel like there's more opportunities? Secondly, especially for you, how difficult is it to make money with something like this without immediately turning to crowdfunding? I think with there are there are more opportunities now uh, with regards to the two uh, you know entities you're just talking about. I think Noclip's doing some really cool stuff. Uh, Cloth Map as well. I mean, you know, you're starting to see some of um, some of the stuff that you know they've been doing just popping up in you know proper traditional you know newspapers and online and stuff. Was it uh, just the other day? Uh, was it Drew was in like a decommissioned bunker and got to <laughs> yeah. press the uh, got to press the nuclear button, which is an incredible story. That's that's fantastic. I love the idea of just you know him being at a place and going, okay, I really want to do this now, and that's the thing that I I would love to do. And if you've got the audience, then you can do it. These days, it's not necessarily a case of, as you say, having to come out of one of the big places. It is probably a lot easier, or a bit easier, I should say. I don't actually know if you come out of one of the big places, especially in terms of crowdfunding, especially if you're big in the US. I think that's been borne out with some of the uh, you know Patreon uh, financial results, basically. But the way I feel about it is it enables personalities, people who other people want to see, to go out and do the things that they really want to do, so I think it's I think it's fantastic. I don't I don't begrudge anyone. Uh, I know there's there's a bit of a thing sometimes about uh, crowdfunding. I think it's great if you if you can get the people behind you, uh, if you can get them to trust you, and if you can deliver on that trust, then that's absolutely fantastic. And I think that everyone's everyone who has really gone for it is doing that. Yeah, I do think people need to kind of understand the right time to pull that lever to pull that crowdfunding lever and actually to you know put yourself out there because uh, i think very often people don't have a solid understanding of i'm not gonna say what you're worth because that sounds insane but what you can pull in based off of everything you've done in the past and i know a lot of people who go into crowdfunding with big goals and end up with 30 dollars a month which in that case like it's awesome that people are willing to give you money to do what you're doing but you do have to be this right combination of I, you know, I've been big in other spots. I have a really cool idea. I have this audience I'm bringing with me. You mentioned if you're in the U.S., do you think you, if you're from the U.K. or anywhere else, it's more difficult to actually get money through Patreon or other forms? I'm not sure if the if the results. I mean, I've not uh, I've not tested all of it. I've not not got a spreadsheet, um, but I think. If you've come, I mean, I'm talking about the big guys here, the you know, the kind of kind of funnies and yeah. and all of that, and you know, there's just a, a you know bigger audience, I suppose, uh, which if you know just at its base form, you would think would translate into uh, more money per month or whichever way, whichever avenue you're doing it. Um, but I, I'm sure that as time goes on, that may not necessarily be true. But uh, but yeah, I don't think that there's uh, I don't think there's necessarily an, an issue with any sort of crowdfunding, and uh, yeah, I think the UK's got a lot of talented people, and if they want to do it, I think you're right. In, in, wherever you're from, you've got to you've got to choose the right time. It's like free agency, basically. Yeah. You've got to you know you don't want to go out there uh, 
from your guaranteed contract and then be like, oh, this is this is not panned out. So it's uh, I salute anyone who actually does it because you are taking uh, you can try and mitigate that risk by okay, I know that I'm fairly popular, you know, in the metrics on say social or views uh, on YouTube or whatever we do at the company you're at, but at the same time. You know, you don't know how much of that is the institution and how much of that is you. So, yeah, it's a it's a brave move. And uh, anyone who does it, you know, even if it necessarily doesn't pay off, they should I think they should be applauded for it. I think I'd be terrified. Like the idea of putting yourself out there in a certain way and being like, all right, like how much money can I rake in? And like you said, is it because I was at GameSpot or IGN or somewhere else? Or did you actually like me as a person? And so often people will come out and yeah, like you said, it's. You just never know what's going to come in. So it, it's it's braver than it seems to go out and put yourself out there and do that. Uh, these campaigns, I assume, are taking up the majority of your time from week to week. But are you doing any freelance features or reviews or do you have any desire to get back into that? Very often when people get out of games media, they are it's, it's a hard out. They're like, I am done. I'm burnt <laughs> out. I do not want to write another fucking review for a Dynasty Warriors game. I'm over it. Uh, I get the itch every once in a while to just like, I would love to talk about this specific game that came out. Like I have thoughts on it that maybe haven't been articulated in the way that I would do that. And maybe there's value there, but for you, are, are you, are you writing anything on the side? Occasionally I've done, uh, something for vice and I wrote something for like a compendium of, of work for, uh, loading bar in the UK. So there's, uh, if they have, uh, a couple of bars where you can play video games. They're video games. Not a, they are. They're not really themed bars, and that makes them sound really cheesy. They're just you know you can go in there. You know it's not like yeah. you can go in there and you they've got video game systems hooked up, but you can actually go there to actually just enjoy a few beers as well. But they uh, there's a few other uh, writers that they wanted to to get in to publish some work for them, so they got in touch and I said yes. But generally. It's working on the uh, campaigns and stuff for the production company just takes up so much time because there's so, so much stuff that you have to do uh, to to make sure everything is right and to make sure that you, you know, you're hitting your obligations and such. And so there's really not that much time left, but I do still enjoy doing some writing. So it's kind of nice to have the option to just be like, okay, right, I'm going to write about X now. And if someone gets in touch and says, we'd like to pick it up, or maybe they get in touch with you before. But generally, a lot of the game stuff that I do now is uh, is on stuff like this, or I go on the Vice, uh, the Waypoint podcast. And just, you know, have, have a chat about E3 or, you know, what we think about the, the games industry and, and such. So generally, that's what I do now, because it's a lot quicker and easier than really piling into a, a feature and spending 40 hours making sure that's right, because... When you've got obligations, not just to your client, but to your business partners as well, you've got to make sure that everyone has their head in the game. Did you ever consider getting out of games entirely, even with the campaigns and everything like that? Like for you, was it was it always important for you to stay in this industry in general? Or was there ever a moment where you're like, forget this, like, let me let me just do something entirely different? Um, well, we wanted to to do some video game stuff because we always felt that we knew video games really well and there was uh, some cool creative stuff that we could do for certain people. Uh, that's not to say that 
you know, we're just going to focus on video games and that's just all we're going to do forever. But yeah, it's nice. It's, you know, in, in video games, we, we know what we're doing there. Um, we know what we're doing in certain other avenues as well, but while, while we're getting started and everything else is going, we, uh, we had a good, uh, a good idea of what we wanted to do with a few things and thankfully they happened. So yeah, it's, uh, even though, we did kind of make our name for saying that we hated all video games. We do kind of, <laughs> we do kind of like video games. You know, sometimes they're good. <laughs> every so, once yeah. in a while, it's pretty rare. Yeah. But every once in a while, video games are not the worst. Uh, <laughs> you did mention that you know you do some podcasts for uh, Vice, or you do do still do some freelance work in games. But now that you're mostly outside of games media, uh, what do you kind of think about the overall health of games writing i think last time you were on here we shit talked it a bit rightfully so like it was it was it was the correct amount of shit talking about Mm. you know some criticism and stuff like that um i think when you're so invested in it when you were at video gamer i think you were always clear-headed and were able to point out things that were good and things that were bad about the industry but when you're still doing that weekly grind it's hard to kind of take a bird's eye view of what's going on i mean has the emergence of waypoint and glixel made you feel any better about the quality of games writing out there or is it still kind of the same from your standpoint yeah i mean in terms of actually uh reading i'm not reading as much uh because when i was in it you would just you'd be reading every single second of the day which is just good practice firstly as a writer Mm -hmm. uh but um but yeah i mean there are places i still think that there is there is room for improvement. I mean, I never thought that we necessarily were, you know, the greatest. I just thought that we had a nice angle on a lot of the way we approach things that was different. And so when you saw some of the more kind of, you know, vanilla stuff, which is fine, sometimes you're like, "Uh," and then there's just all out, you know, kind of weak writing and you just don't like it. But having said that, I do find myself generally just reading around a lot of stuff. But the thing that I really like doing and always like doing for video games, uh, reading video games, writing was features heavy stuff. Yeah. And so when Polygon started, I know the Polygon, you know, it's, it got a lot of stick at the start um, because of, you know, the way it marketed itself, but it also has some incredible feature work in the beginning. It was, you know, and towards the, you know, the first year or two, I remember there was a Street Fighter feature, I think it was by Chris Plant, and it was just, it was so good. It was so in depth. It was proper, right? Just do that for however many months. And there, it had everything. And that's what I really like to see in, you know, with, with Glixel and, and Waypoint as it is now. I think there, you know, that is, that's what I like to read, and that seems to be getting serviced. So, yeah, I think generally, as we as we keep on going, it'll be, you know, it will it'll just get better and better. Hopefully, um, I mean, it's uh, I've read uh, you know some been some lovely features on um, like some nostalgic stuff, some retro stuff, like uh, the British Games Mag Meme Machines. I think that was on Eurogamer recently by Damien McFerrin. That was fantastic. It had Jazz Rignall. And all the guys who were there, you know, in it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of good stuff out there, like like anything, really. And hopefully, just you'll just see the quality go up and up over the next few years. Yeah, those early Polygon features, those really in-depth ones that you could tell actually took literal months to put together, maybe even a year sometimes, were, were incredible. Like, I, I, yeah. d- I do miss that, because I... I I'm not shitting on Polygon. I, I think uh, their video efforts have been really great and really funny and interesting. Um, but there was that aspect that... 
you know deep down, especially as someone, you know, you've been very involved with websites on a major level and understanding, you know, kind of the maybe the economics surrounding it. And I've been in similar spots where those are really great showpieces and make your website look great, but they're not exactly you don't really get the best return on investment when you're spending. (laughs) When you think about the salary you're paying uh, for someone to put in that work, then that's going to get maybe the same number of clicks as here's the top 10 Pokemon Go Pokemon that you can use at a gym battle or something like that. Like that's probably to get exponentially more money. Um, but you do thankfully still have on Waypoint and uh, on Glixel and even on Polygon sometimes you do have those features that you could tell aren't just intended for clicks. They're actually intended for this is good, interesting work that people will appreciate. Uh, and if you let's say right now someone comes to you and they're like, we're building, we want to build a games branch uh, on our company. It's similar to the, the Vice and the Rolling Stones situation with Waypoint and Glixel. Uh, how would you structure it? If you had not unlimited money, but let's say a good amount of money you were given, and they're like, we want you to build the site that you want to build, that you know will be successful, but you can also, you have some leniency, you can make some features. I mean, would you focus on game culture? Would you do a bunch of kind of interview style things like Glixel? Would you invest everything in video? If you're kind of building the brand new games website that will survive in the modern times, what do you think is the best balance of content? Yeah, I think that's there. Are, that is the question that a lot of people in a lot of different boardrooms are asking themselves right now. And I think if there was one answer, whoever it was, would be you know riding around in in several Ferraris just all duct taped <laughs> together. You know, um, it's it's really difficult because even when the next big thing seems to be coming along, then there's you know disruption if you want to call it that. So YouTube, then then how long can you rely on that? I mean, there's been some stuff with YouTube and content creators there and how much they get paid and the way they get paid and how ads work and stuff like that. So <clears throat> there's been some talk and really I can't verify, but you hear stuff like it's not it's not how it used to be. Maybe the money's not flying in as much as it was. Same with, I think you're absolutely right, there are with, say, the early Polygon stuff, Waypoint, Glixel, there are workhorses and show horses in uh in in the case of the articles you do so like news rumors or whatever is, is roi stuff basically and then your big kind of prestige stuff is the stuff that you're allowed to do because everything else is maybe doing well so really right now there are a lot of people going how do we how do we do this how do we make this you know in the in ye olden days uh <laughs> it was fine you know magazines were tried and tested you would be at a publisher and you would say, I've got an idea for a new video games magazine. Um, and I would like to, you know, I'd like to do an issue zero or I'd like to have a, you know, make it a section in one of the others and see how it goes. And that's like really kind of early days, like eighties and nineties. Um, <clears throat> and you would take it from there. And if it was successful, it was successful. And you know, the, the money was there because people were buying in quite literally unless they were reading it in the newsagents, you know, they had to buy it to, to get the most out of it. So I think these days where there are different funding models, there are, you know, there's a patron, as you say, some crowdfunding stuff, outside investment, video, uh, and all the, all the rest of it. I think it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. But I suppose the way that you, you'd start it is, what does anyone actually really want to read? And I think these days, a lot of people really want to just actually be in the discussion themselves. Yeah. So it's not the case of you're on the mountain anymore going, this game is crap. 
or this game is amazing. Now, I mean, you look at NeoGAF, uh, you know, uh, spent a lot of time like playfully jiving at uh, NeoGAF and have been jived back many times. Um, but, you know, it, that's what a lot of people want. I mean, look at Twitter, for goodness sake. Yeah, really. I mean, it's, uh, you know, people want to, be, and that Twitter is pretty much all that is good and bad about um, kind of forum culture and direct uh, discussion, real time, essentially discussion with, with people. So, you know, that, but then again, there is no silver bullet, I don't think, at the moment, because that has various drawbacks. You see it in Twitter and you see it in some of the other. Uh, forums which have gone bad. NeoGAF, I suppose, is, is okay actually in some of its certain uh, moderation. Sometimes it goes too far and you'll get like 40,000 pages of discussion before it gets locked. And someone's <laughs> like, what? Wait a minute, what are we arguing about? I saw one that ran for like 100 pages, I think, about SNES versus Mega Drive. Oh my so, god. Uh, so, uh, what's happening here? Like, I got to like the 40th page and I was like, what? But why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, it, you know, it's just, you know, I think that whichever way you do it, you've got to maintain that, you know, the the integrity of what people want to read and, uh, you know, good features, but you know, good news as well, like as in actual reportage of the news and maybe not a lot of churn, but then churn also gets the click. So right now, like I said, someone, someone's sitting there and someone might figure it out fairly soon and then yeah they're gonna they're gonna be the uh, the person neogaf does secretly have some of the better video game discourse out there but like you said it's usually buried under you know it's 74 pages of the hot dog shit where like i when i'm looking at the stats for my podcast every once in a while i get clicks directly from neogaf i'm like oh who's talking about my podcast and I'll get to like, I'm on like page 174 and it's like, oh, this podcast is pretty cool. And that's followed by, like you said, arguments about like, I don't know, what do you think about Donkey Kong 64 versus Cranky Kong and this thing? I'm like, what is going on in this place? And Twitter's a good example because like you mentioned, uh, you think about it as that's where a lot of like the discourse has gone. And there is those reactionary quick jokes that get thousands and thousands of, of RTs and likes, but there's also the, the long-form threads that you'll see people really pointing everyone to. And The Ringer, I think, is kind of a good parallel in terms of a site that almost acts as Twitter in that way, where you have, I, I don't know how deep you are into the NBA, I would assume not too much, but um, there was uh, the draft just happened, and there's like these quick 500-word reactions to certain picks, to certain trades, and stuff like that. But then there's also the value to we're doing a... 5,000 word diatribe on the the value of second round picks as a whole and stuff like that. So I, I don't think there's a silver bullet to how you want to do a website, um, but I do think you can look towards something like Twitter or something like NeoGAF and see how people like to have a conversation, how people like to consume content, and hopefully find some sort of balance there. One magazine that I do uh, still really like is, uh, and when I was at E3, I, I picked up is ESPN the magazine. I've uh, I've liked that for a number of years now, not just from its content. Uh, ESPN the magazine sounds like almost like one of those old kind of official PlayStation mags. It sounds like it's going to be very, very down the line, but really, it's really, really good. And um, I like the design, the layouts, really sharp. But they, this was the uh, the playoffs issue for uh, the NBA Finals, oh, yeah. or going into the into the playoffs, then the finals. And yeah, they had a, like a full breakdown. So they had, similar to what you were just saying, they had breakdowns of uh, certain players, 
There's one about uh, you know LeBron. He's was it 32 now. Yeah. He's he's got all this stuff that apparently is you know he's using. He's got this special truck so he can relax. But there's various interviews in there where it's like he yeah he's in the air too much basically. So no matter what he does, really he's in trouble. And now they now he's getting to the age where do they do they moderate how many minutes he plays? And I think you saw a little bit of that. Mm. Uh, or do they just does he? But he wants to win all the time. So how do you tell the man that you know that he's not allowed to play? Basically, especially when he's the one that can control your future as much as you yeah. can control his. Uh, but then, so they had that sort of stuff. Then they had more deep dive stuff, uh, historical stuff about uh, the Miami Heat uh, coach and uh, Showtime Lakers and all of that, and where he is now. You know, at seventy-two years old. And so they you know, I like that magazine it has a nice balance of these like kind of shorter, uh, like bits, like data driven stuff, and then more long form thing. But I think when you look at even some of the the best sites that have got that had amazing stuff like Grantland and stuff like that, it's just no one. I don't think anyone knows, yeah. and that is obviously worrying. Yeah, I, I wish that's the thing. Every time I feel like I praise a site or an outlet or something, like I think this is the way to do it, they shut down like a week later. So I just I don't know what the actual like what is actually working money wise. I don't know the actual numbers out there to say like for all I know, maybe it's the sites that I think are doing things the worst that are somehow like piling in the most money. So yeah, it, I I wish there was a silver bullet. I wish there was a a way to know that like hey is are the waypoints when they are doing long form stuff around their shorter stuff is that working or is it just a waste of money to invest that much and is that why polygon stopped doing these massive features just because they don't bring anything in uh something that we've talked about in the past is game reviews uh quite often actually since the last time we talked uh have you found any new critics, freelance or otherwise, that are doing things you really like, or maybe even specific reviews that have stood out and said something different about a game other than, you know, the graphics are good, this part sucks, 7 out of 10? You know, I think right now uh, in video game stuff, there are uh, the voices that are at the top, uh, I think, uh, you know, they've, they've been the same for a little while now. Um, which is fine because I think that there is enough room for you to have your like like music journalism or film journalism or criticism. You know, you want your kind of people who have been there for a while because they they have the experience of realizing. But you still want more people coming through. Um, but at the moment, if I'm completely honest with you, I haven't really seen that much which I've gone. Oh, that that's lovely. I mean, the like I said earlier, the the Eurogamer. Um, Damien McFerrin piece on uh, Me Machines, I thought was fantastic. And yeah, as I said, there's been some uh, been some very cool waypoint um, stuff as well. But it's I don't know. Since I've left, I find that I've actually just been doing a lot of reading that's not necessarily from video game related stuff all the time. Because when you're there, it's your you know that's your bread and butter. And I always used to read around stuff. Uh, before whether that was so one thing that I read a few years ago which I thought was incredible was uh, it was uh, on Vanity Fair and it was about how um, the OJ Simpson trial invented reality television uh, because it was televised and Mm. suddenly the main players are you know all these uh, really good looking you know important rich people 
and in one of the one of the people in that piece was saying that it had the perfect mix of like high and low culture uh you know the beautiful people and the, and everything and then the worst of celebrity culture at the bottom of it so that's yeah that's the sort of writing that's you know really in like enjoying and i went back to that and one thing that i wish hadn't closed and sometimes i just find myself going back to it uh the dissolve oh the yeah film site their piece on terminator 2 um and the uh you know it being an la movie which i i think when you see terminator 2 as a kid especially if you're from you know britain you don't necessarily go this is a movie about los angeles you know, because really you have no frame of reference for what Los Angeles is. It just exists in this place. And you're like, oh, it's, you know, it's got a storm duct thing. Cool. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, things really orange, you know. Um, but th- that site had some super, super cool stuff, uh, about the cops or about the T1000 being like appropriately being a police officer, especially at that time in that place. So that's the sort of stuff that I really, really like that, you know, that sort of thing. And I think, in video games there you know there has been a move towards that sort of thing but only as long as the site can not get away with it but can support it i suppose like we're saying about polygon just then i i've actually i've been reading more film and tv criticism since i've stopped writing game reviews just kind of going in other areas and seeing how that goes and enjoying it also i've been reading a lot more books which is probably the thing i should have been doing all along it's one of those uh Every time you have a full-time job, you're like, I don't have enough time for books. And I still have a full-time job, but, you know, you kind of realize, like, you know what, I, I can I can make time. I can audiobook while I'm at the gym or driving mm. somewhere or something like that. And it, it's just been beneficial, I think, to step away from all of the, the, the writing I used to read, which I don't think is bad. But, you know, you do get used to just reading every single GameSpot, IGN, Polygon review while you're doing it. Especially if, if you are reviewing a big game, you're like, oh, what did this person say? And what did that person say? And now that I'm not beholden to that in any way it's been fascinating to actually read other styles of writing more frequently and kind of get different perspectives uh have there been any specific games that you really wish you could have reviewed like played anything and you're like man i wish i would have reviewed uncharted 4 or overwatch or anything like that so i did uncharted 4 before i left and i thought oh, it was, okay. i thought it was interesting i thought it was by far the best of of the series mm-hmm. um i think that yeah, when the the Nathan Drake collection came out, it it felt like I I, I really liked the first two because they used to be my Christmas games. I would get Uncharted and then I get Uncharted two and then I got Uncharted three and I was like, what what's happened? Um, <laughs> I don't think they've necessarily aged that well. And I think and when I reviewed, I got a bit of blowback on on that from Gaff because um, the shooting was really squirrely, and uh, I was told to you know get good learn how to play the game and then naughty dog released their patch notes and said we've uh we've you know fixed the we aiming fixed the shitty shooting so yeah it was that you know it's interesting but really what what i'm liking at the moment is the freedom to just play games oh, yeah. so when you when you're out of the um when you're out of the preview uh, cycle the, the knowing every little thing about it cycle obviously if you're working with someone then you you do your diligence deep dive into every part of it but generally there's so many games out there now and they're coming from so many different angles and deliveries methods and you know release strategies that it's just nice to be surprised by a game and it's it is kind of nice to know nothing about certain games to just be like oh yeah I just haven't heard of that you know, there's um, yeah. 
for example, I think uh, Outlast 2 has a really controversial ending. I don't know what it is exactly, um, because I haven't had the time to pick it up and play it. But I remember one of the guys from, I think it may have been uh, Polygon, saying that they played it. And it's got a real, like, kind of shocking ending. And I knew that if I'd have been in the office, a video gamer, I would have just sat in and seen it. Or someone would have told me about what it was. And then someone else I knew said, you know, I'm not sure if this is 100% accurate, but I think they said, oh, they changed parts of it. So suddenly there's like a little thing establishing where I'm thinking, okay, so what did they change? Why did they change it? What's this? And it's nice to kind of be a little bit away from it. So you're not just got your nose pressed against, you know, everything all the time. And you can have the capacity to be surprised in certain ways. Yeah, it's uh, it it has made me appreciate games in a way that I haven't in some time. Where uh, the surge, which I finished, and I don't think is a fantastic game, but Souls like game, and I had no idea what that even was until suddenly, um, in my like inbox, like, hey, here's a code for this. And I'm just like playing it, like, wow. If I would have still been in the industry, I would have probably seen 800 trailers and videos and known everything about it, or like you said, or, like talked to other people who have played it. And I, I've had just the chance to kind of kick back and. I think no matter what, I still always have a little bit of a critical eye where I'm evaluating things more than I should be while I'm playing the game, or I'm just thinking so much about, like, here's how I would tackle this if I wrote about it, or here's how I'd look at this, but it has given me a chance to enjoy games in a way I haven't in some time, uh, which might have been why I liked Uncharted 4 as much as I did, where I wasn't, I, I didn't review it, and I just kind of enjoyed the the summer blockbuster nature of it that was one of those that um the blowback to it the number of people who thought it was trash i didn't really fully get um i think i podcast with multiple people who were like uncharted 4 is a terrible game because of this narrative dissonance and that narrative dissonance and this over here and yeah that was one of the few games where i walked away like i just had fun like maybe turning my brain off for that game was the best way to handle it did you said you did like that one though right yeah, you know, I, I thought that it had some really, really beautiful moments in it. And they're not necessarily the ones, you know, where you're, you're riding around in this Jeep, you know, smashing it about and there's this kind of quasi open world. The, the bit that when I think of Uncharted 4 is when you're in the lake and you're swimming down, you think that you're in somewhere, you know, in the ocean somewhere and you come out and you're not, you're just, you know, basically in a steelworks town somewhere and you're just like, it's a river or a lake or something, and it's about what, 40 meters wide. But yeah. it's quite, so you have to get submerged thing that's fallen off the back. And I thought, you know, that's that's a developer who who knows what they're doing with their own audience, with their own IP, and with the expect, expectations for both. And so I'm really interested to see what happens with The Last of Us 2. I don't think necessarily that uh, that I would have wanted to direct a sequel to that um that's not an easy task yeah i mean essentially it's so i i thought the last of us was was good i didn't love it like everyone else seemed to love it um i liked the ending and i thought the the prologue was really good uh but it kind of loses its way just after that and then there's certain other things there's there's too much crap with she can't swim ellie can't swim so it's like okay great so now i've got Mm -hmm. to do more you know, palette stuff. Um, and, but yeah, I, there were moments in that game where it's like, wow, they're, you know, they're really, they're really quite 70s film feeling and that ending in particular is like a real, well, okay, cool. So I don't know. I mean, 
are they going to do? Are they going to Godfather Part Two? It is it going to be? <laughs> is it going to be younger, younger Joel, and then she's going to be older, and then really, you know, did their paths cross at any point? Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot on the line with that because it has such goodwill. Um, but if anyone's got the, you know, the money and the expertise and the backing to make it work, you think it'd be those guys. And also, I'm not sure what's going to happen with Dad of War. I don't really, uh, you know, obviously there have been some changes to God of War where, mm. you know, God of War used to be a game about smashing, just smashing everything. And now it's, you know, it's got a kid and everything. So in one way, I think, okay, let's see what they can, what, you know, Santa Monica Shoe can do with it. Let's, you know, let's not rush to totally prejudge it. But I think sometimes it's like, yeah. It's like when um, New Doom, which I grew to actually quite like, oh, yeah. New Doom starts with like a cutscene. Like, okay, like firstly, right, Doom is the best Metallica game ever made <laughs> right this is like beginning a metallica album with a skit you know like a prop like imagine if uh master of puppets starts with them just talking you'd be like no it's, you know battery kicks you like great i got it and so with uh original doom you start you're holding your pistol in your left hand for reasons never explained as you hold every other gun in your right and you just run and shoot stuff now i understand that you don't necessarily want it to be completely the same as before but yeah, there's something about that that didn't quite flow until really you get into the whole, you know, those those close-up kills and stuff. But I am looking forward to seeing Wolfenstein 2. That was one of the things that I didn't oh, get a chance incredible. to see yeah. at E3, uh, even though I was there. And it was, but we were obviously doing some work there, so I couldn't couldn't find time to get away um, and see it. But um, yeah, I I really like Wolfenstein: The Old Blood. I think I actually prefer it to um, the New Order because it's it's shorter, it's punchier, there is less downtime in it. Yeah, I'm, uh, I I played the New Order. I never, never got a chance to play Old Blood. Yeah, it goes a bit weird at the end with like proper zombie stuff. But in, in general, I, I really quite liked it. And uh, but one thing that I love between the games is whoever does the voice work for BJ Blazkowicz, like it it could be delivered in a way. Like it's very, it's a very macho game in terms of what you actually do. Your interaction is blowing people's like limbs off, and it's got that, you know, nineteen eighties superior bodies, Arnie and Sly stuff going down. But I really, really like the delivery of almost all of uh, BJ's voice work because yeah. it's almost whispered. It's you know he's uh, there's just something about it that you know kind of undercuts all the all the, you know, He-Man sort of stomping around, where he's not Duke Nukem, he's not out there barreling around, shouting, I'll kill them all, or whatever. He actually sounds just very upset <laughs> that he has to do this. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with uh, the, new, the new Colossus. It's so strange, because, uh, and I really like it too, because it's so contemplative and somber, and mm. almost oddly trying to be poetic at times and like you said it, it's so uh, diametrically opposed to the violence the bombast the the blowing bo- blowing up bodies and stuff like that that you do see in wolfenstein where in doom which i did love new doom quite a bit uh even though the protagonist is 
silent as far as I know. If that dude could talk, you would think he would almost sound like Duke Nukem, but like much mm. more serious, like yelling fuck you and, you know, like <laughs> grunting more than anything else because you're just kind of this godlike character. But Wolfenstein strikes this interesting balance between uh, like extreme hyper-violence and this main character who is almost talking at a whisper and, and really thinking about what's going on instead of just acting on everything that's happening. Uh, mm. And yeah, God, the, the new God of War, um, and I'll, of course, disclose that I, you know, I work with 10 gentlemen who are very closely associated with Sony Santa Monica. I had kind of gotten tired of what God of War was, so to make this game that looks essentially to me kind of like, here is the last of us but from a god of war lens from a kratos lens Mm -hmm. i'm fascinated by it just because i was ready for that series to change um where uh with doom i was just excited for something that even though it did kind of start with the video like you mentioned where you're like wait this isn't doom it eventually grew into being very doom like a very modern version of what that was i'm very ready for god of war to separate itself from the standard god of warfare and to do something different to try something it doesn't have to be overly emotional. I don't need to, by the end, be crying about the, the relationship between <laughs> father and son. Um, but to try something different, to, to go in a different direction is what I was looking for with that. Uh, was there anything else from E3, since you did go there, that uh, did stand out to you? Of course, there's Xbox One X. There's Mario, which people are rightfully drooling over. Uh, was there anything else that you saw that you wish you could just be playing right now? I mean, maybe Metro Exodus, which might have been my game of the show. Uh, anything else that really grabbed your attention? Yeah, I wanted to, as I said, I really wanted to see uh, Wolfenstein. Um, uh, obviously, I love Pro Evolution Soccer. Um, and I did manage to get, you know, one game of that, a quick shot of it. Um, Mario, yeah, it's uh, one of the things that really struck me this year at E3 was because, uh, it, you know, now it's kind of general admission, or you have to buy tickets. And I think there was uh, in, in the first couple of days there was a bit of an issue with uh not with security and people you know uh, certain don't want to say choke points um but you know everything at e3 is laid out in a grid and so there's now this new mass of people walking around and yeah it's um i uh, so the nintendo this one getting to the nintendo booth was completely mobbed oh, like yeah. so people uh, we're taking, I think, some of the Polygon guys, some of the Kotaku guys, took some shots of it. And I was in the other uh, hall. So it was just, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange experience at E3 this year. And I think a lot of people didn't get to actually, uh, say, journalists didn't get to see a lot of the stuff that they wanted to because of some of the uh, mayhem that that the new uh, admission system allowed. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be allowed to go because... There was so much joy on a lot of people's faces. And so if you go to E3 enough when it's just press, then a lot of the time you just see a bunch of British guys walking around looking really tired. And so, <laughs> you know, to and to, so to see to see people in there like really, you know, E3's always been this kind of like mystical place where you have to be invited to kind of and so, so people will pay to get in, uh, and that's fine. I think they, a lot of people there, had a, a really, really good time. But I think there needs to be some changes to how the, you know, the journalism or criticism side works. Um, so maybe a bit more like Gamescom, a bit more like there's a press day, and then there's a public day, or there's a business area, 
where you can just go and not have to deal with the crowds or anything because it plays havoc with certain systems of uh, interview timing slots and hands-on uh, and stuff like that. So I think a lot of people didn't get to uh, play um, everything that they wanted. Um, I certainly didn't get to play almost anything, but that's generally because I was there to like really work on certain particular things. But one thing I do want to check out is the new Call of Duty. Because yeah. it, it fascinates me that we that it's that it's now just called Call of Duty World War Two. There's <laughs> no, it yeah, there's no. I mean, there's no World at War subtitle really. There's no kind of. It's almost like that was the initial briefing doc, and then they went, "Fuck it, just that's what it is." It's Call yeah. of Duty World War Two. Do it. Um, it looks quite nice. Uh, I can't really say having not played it, but with. Scorpio, uh, sorry, Xbox One X. Um, I think that there's it in some of the footage that we see in a lot of games. I'm really, this is quite nerdy, excited for improved particle effects. <laughs> um, because you know, I think the games haven't really, you know, they look not, they look nicer on a surface level. They look a lot nicer, and when people say this looks like a PS2 game, that is the biggest load of bollocks in the world. Yeah, those are people who haven't seen a PS2 game in quite some time. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's stuff like smoke, rubble, destruction, uh, not lens flare, but you know, all of that. And Call of Duty World War Two for a game that's about the you know the destruction of Europe, basically. (laughs) Then that's and I'm interested to see what's going on with um, Xbox One X, and I'm interested to see Twitter on Christmas Day when. Um, someone has told their parents or partner or whoever that they want an Xbox One X and they've said it on the phone and they've got an Xbox One S. Yeah. Because a few people have been tweeting about doing transcription and interviews and it's sometimes difficult to discern which one you mean. Especially if the person buying it for you is you know, not really into video games. So say your mum or your dad is buying it for you. And it's like, oh, I thought you said this one. So yeah, it's a, uh, the name itself. Uh, I'd have, I'd have called it like Xbox One Elite, or I think it could be a, a you know a Wii U situation yeah, where people I are agree. like, there's there's now this family of Xbox One stuff. You're like, okay, but why? Which, which one is better? How do I just you know? It's with PlayStation, PlayStation Two. There you go. It's <laughs> PlayStation Three. <laughs> you'd think is going to be more powerful than PlayStation 2. Uh, and so I, I don't know, but I think that Microsoft, they, the, the industry has helped when there's a strong uh, offering from everyone. Nintendo Switch uh, has surprised me, and I've spoken to a few people and thought, you know what, I scoffed a little bit, because I thought that's what they were going to do for ages, uh, mm. combine that you know, uh, home and um, portable console stuff. But I was, you know, when I saw all the promotional shots, the ones that Nintendo always do of like the the family playing or the friends playing, and the weird like, party on the roof with the yeah. switch. Yeah, but I, you know what? I've seen it. I've actually seen it in real life. You know, I've been on trains with people, and you can, you know, they've got the the switch out. Well, even in my company, Jim and Dave were playing uh, Mario Kart while we we're in LAX. That may be more of a you know, indictment of how bad LAX is than <laughs> uh, for while you're waiting in departures. But but yeah, it's working. And you know what? As soon as they get Pro Evolution Soccer on that thing, if they do, that's when I'll buy it. It's the killer Zel- app. Yeah, but Zelda's good and I like what it offers. 
uh, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 4 Pro, you know, we know what you've got there. Um, and Xbox One X is, you know, the one that make it the most powerful thing in the world. So hopefully it will deliver. Uh, I just don't want Microsoft to make the same mistakes that it did last time around. Because with, with Xbox One, there were some really crazy, crazy decisions there. And I've just been reading... Um, Rereading a little bit of Dean Takashi's book, The Xbox 360 Uncloaked, mm-hmm. which was, uh, it's got like so much detail from almost everything about how the Xbox 360 was made. And the first chapter is called Lessons, because uh, Dean also wrote a book about, it's called Opening the Xbox about the original machine. And uh, essentially, at the start, they say that it's gone from being almost like this kind of skunk works project, the Xbox to the Xbox 360, and now everyone's involved. Everyone's involved on it, and it has to go through so many people now. Um, and with Xbox 360, I think they absolutely nailed it. I love that machine. But with Xbox One, there was obviously quite a lot of other stuff. The TV stuff. I mean, when Don Matrick's talking about TV, 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 oh, sitting God, there, Don Matrick. He's sitting there in Europe going... Great, you know we don't really get ESPN here. <laughs> it, doesn't re- <laughs> it doesn't really matter, you know. ESPN is relegated to, you know, like way down the dial um, in terms of sports packaging. We have you know, completely different packages, basically. And the only thing that ESPN is good for is baseball. You know, there's no sports center going on here. We're not watching 25 hours of that. Yeah. So, well, I'm not anyway. Even though in America, I love watching sports center. Um, but but yeah, it's, I think they made some some real obvious mistakes with that. I think they know that. But I just hope that they don't repeat it again. I will say though, I like the form factor of this machine. The last yes. one looked like a really bad VHS player. Uh, all it needed was a top loader, and it would have been absolutely <laughs> perfect. But this one, I like it. And you know, I'm not sure if you if you saw the images, but at, uh, yeah, I did. The Microsoft booth, they had an exploded view of it, so. They had the case, and then they had the various, uh, like the main board and the video card, and all that, just kind of on different stands, as if it, you know, an exploded view. And I thought, you know what? I hope it does well because everyone does well when everything's strong, um, and even, but I think even when Nintendo are weak, they still have the first party offerings to just go. Okay, I mean Nintendo Land on Wii U, which no one really cares about. Uh, I think that had some of the strongest offerings I played on the entire machine. Yeah. Um, because that's just classic Nintendo. But I don't think Microsoft have got, they don't have anywhere near that uh, kind of first party uh, lineup, those sort of agreements. So I think they're in they're in dangerous territory if they they can't just be the machine that's more expensive and does everything slightly better. So, but I'm looking forward to, to getting my hands on it. I tell you, I think uh, if it's saying what it, the, the specs that it, it's going to do, then yeah, I'll, I'll have a look at it. No doubt. Yeah, it, it is that weird. There's such this odd sentiment from people who are taking sides, who are on Nintendo side or Sony side or Microsoft side, where they want the other machine to fail, they want the other company to lose exclusives or something like that. And I just think that's such a backwards way of thinking if you actually care about games as an industry, like you said, because when everyone's succeeding, it raises everyone's level. It everyone gets more competitive. Everyone has to get more competitive to stay in it. And I I think the Xbox One X looks fascinating. And it's I I'm continuing to come back to the who is it for side of the argument mm. where 
value-wise, if you're someone who doesn't want to go all in on a PC, it makes sense to get a $500 machine that runs things very well. But I think as you approach the $500 price point, you do approach the, wait, why don't I just invest in a PC? And uh, if you're on the lower end of like, well, I still want a console, you can get an uh, an Xbox One S and a PS4 combined for the same price as an Xbox One X. And I keep coming back to that. When you can get two consoles for one, um, I don't entirely see the value there. So I do hope it does well. I'm fascinated by it and what developers do with the games on there to still maintain backwards compatibility with everything. But it's it's a weird time, and this the switch is actually what I'm most fascinated by because goddamn Mario looks good. Um, and <laughs> I, I I do I I'm slowly I I pre-ordered a switch so long ago and then dropped the pre-order once I realized there was only one game in existence on it. Um, and then once the, a few of these announcements happen, it seems like early 2018 is a good time to own one. But uh, overall, it, it's fun to see everyone doing well, and I do hope that. I, I wish I know, I know the loss must have been huge. If the Xbox One X came out at four hundred dollars and they're like we're matching Pro and we're also much more powerful, that would have been just a throwing your balls out on the table and saying what's up? Here we go. Like mm. let's just see what happens. But I I'm at least fascinated to see kind of how it goes by the end of the year. Um, I heard from um, someone and I, a few people I think that um, Sony because they go second and I can't I'm not sure why that is if I was Microsoft I'd be clamoring to to not go first yeah, basically yeah. to you know preempt essentially um, but the Sony have different strategies different so if Microsoft say X then we can say Y and I think that um, I don't know this for certain but I would be surprised if there wasn't a version of Sony's conference where the PS4 Pro actually got a price drop. I agree. But because Microsoft's machine is so much more expensive, they've essentially been handed to them uh, without having to depreciate in real terms. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's really interesting on, on how much, especially, you know, in terms of uh, how much that is it, you know, is it £425 in Britain roundabout now for... It's a it's a lot. I mean, you know, Britain at the moment with Brexit and you know the government it has. Well, it doesn't actually have a government at the moment. Um, by the time the Xbox One X comes out, you know, you probably need a wheelbarrow full of uh, full of money to go and buy yeah. one. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 not really a good time in Europe or Britain, especially to be launching a machine that costs that much money uh, because yeah. the pound is just just rubbish basically at the moment, and Britain is in just turmoil. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and I don't know. I hope it all works out, really, because I, you know, this Xbox One irritated me because it went against pretty much everything the 360 was, um, and there's like Sony and, X, uh, and Microsoft had switched sides. Now there was an arrogance about uh, you know it was like almost the worst of Ken Kataragi. You know, yeah. with the PlayStation Three and the two jobs and all that rubbish. So yeah, here's hoping that they they'll do what Sony did with PS4, a bit more humility, a bit more focus on you know video games and not TV TV. It's like you can use this as a pass through box. Why would I do that? Why why would I do that? That's, <laughs> it's useless to most of the audience. In retrospect, that conference I, that was the uh, the last E3 I went to was 2013, where all that stuff went down, um, and I was at those two press conferences and i just remember even in the moment being like what this is the craziest shit 
like what they're saying at this conference when they dropped the price. They talked about uh, later on that's like, well, if you don't want this, we have a 360 for you for the always online stuff. And it was surreal in the moment. And the farther we get away from it, the more it's like, man, what a weird start to this entire console generation. Like it was such yeah. a strange right out of the gate. And yeah, I do hope we don't see them repeat those sort of mistakes. I mean, now that Don Matrick's gone and Phil Spencer's there, there's already a, a better tone to everything, but um, the price is the only thing that kind of scares me in terms of how that thing is going to do. Um, mm. Quick question. If, if the year ended right now, uh, what would be your game of the year? Like, do you have one game that sticks out as, I mean, for me, it would actually be, uh, and it might be weird for you to name this one because you've done work on it, but Resident Evil 7 is probably right up there for me. Um, is there anything for you that stands out as this shocked me in terms of quality? Uh, not really. I mean, obviously, full disclosure, yeah, I did uh, work with Capcom on the Resident Evil 7 campaign stuff. Um, but that aside, I really, really like Resident Evil 7. I mean, it's, uh, as, as a big fan, I mean, in my games room where I'm sitting now behind me, there is like an original sealed, uh, copy of Biohazard on PS1. So that's yeah. just, you know, it's, that's, and that was one of the, it was why it's so exciting to work on it. And, uh, yeah, I think that that, uh, full releases, uh, this year, that if it ended now, that would be the thing that, uh, that was really memorable, particularly, uh, because of the VR stuff and seeing people play it in VR. So for one of the things we did uh, with Capcom, we took people into like a, a basement and we they played um, they played kitchen or they, they, in VR and stuff like that. And just the reactions were yeah, I mean just leading people down into this basement. And you know it already kitchen it kind of already been out there, and so that it was a known quantity, but. We dressed it up and all of that, and we recorded their reactions. And so, yeah, I think in terms of uh, the game itself, and you know, uh, having done some stuff for it, so professional stuff, yeah, that would be the uh, that would be the thing that had really excited me this year. But then there's if it ended now, yeah. But I think there's also loads of really other uh, good stuff coming later on in the year. Yeah, it, Resident Evil Seven, biggest surprise for me. I did not care that. I mean, I Resident Evil Four, of course, was one of those games where I'm like, this is fantastic, but it didn't have a great attachment to the series. And there were also moments early on where I almost stopped playing it, not because it was bad, because I am a giant sissy and could not continue without getting freaked out the entire time. But I'm very happy I actually finished that game. Um, Steve, what are you working on that people that you know you can actually talk about? Uh, and where can people find you on Twitter slash What's the website for Special Gun? Uh, well, I can't talk about anything in progress. Oh, come uh, on, breaking news! I, <laughs> uh, no, I can't. I'll be like, if I even if I just moved, you know, the if the synapse fired right now to tell you, I'd be assassinated, which is probably, <laughs> which is probably fair. Uh, no, I can't say anything that we're that we're working on until. Think about how big this podcast would be if right during the end of it you got assassinated. <laughs> Please think about my download numbers. <laughs> um. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so our, you know, the, the business website is uh, specialgunproductions.com. Um, I'll share reels on there, um, all the work that we've done so far, including we did something, uh, like a live action, um, trailer for Earthshape, uh, on uh, Google Daydream for, and Earthshape was made by, uh, Mike Bithel, who did volume, Thomas was alone. That was really fun to work on. Uh, and so there's some other, other stuff that we've, we've worked on there as well. But yeah, I can't say anything. I'm afraid that's me now. That's me. I am. I am Spencer now. You know. Hold oh, on. Before I'll say one thing. Before um, 
before I go, I said that I, I really like uh, Phil's like little uh, giant bomb debrief sort of things. Oh yeah, I think that. I mean, I still think that he is. He's obviously a uh, you know a company man, a corporation man. Um, but I, I think that he is a lot better at communicating at reactive communication than a lot of executives have been in the past. So. Uh, you know, he'll go on Giant Bomb and he'll he'll talk about various terms that are being thrown around and he'll be like, well, actually, I don't agree with that or this. And he feels a lot more human than, you know, a lot of the a lot of the super suits that used to be at various uh, companies. So, yeah, I mean, it's all part of Microsoft's drive to to make up in their minds. And I think a lot of players minds. So, yeah, he's hoping it works. Yeah, I I mean to be fully honest, a lot of the kind of early workings of this podcast were based off of what Giant Bomb did with their their late night E three shows of just getting fascinating people in games kind of one on one or sometimes it's one on six and just talking <laughs> in a human way that isn't just like some business robot. Yeah, Phil Spencer does that fantastically in terms of just like, hey, I'm gonna like humanize this aspect of it. It's it's the opposite of what Don Matrick did, and it's what actually Ubisoft I think did extremely well this year with like Here's the people who made these games excited to talk about these games and saying the honest things about them. In most cases, it, like you said, it's always businessy in certain ways, but uh, more of that is welcome. More of that human side of it makes it all way better. Uh, mm. Burns, thank you so much for for doing this. It has been like a, like a solid year since we've actually talked, and so much has changed. Uh, it's mm. awesome to see you um, when you got out of games media, get into something right away that seems like it's extremely successful and super cool and. I look forward to you um, actually being able to talk about things, not get assassinated, <laughs> and uh, show some of that other work in the future. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on as usual. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you again, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.